I was reminded earlier this week about whenever I was 16 years old. You know, some of you think that was back in the Stone Ages, and uh, it wasn't. And as a matter of fact, we had cars back then uh, whenever I was 16 years old, and I was trying to learn how to drive one. And uh, we had, uh, in the little school where I was, grew up at, we had a uh, driver's ed class in school. And uh, the sophomore year, and depending on when your birthday was, you either took it the first uh, semester or you took it the second semester. And, um, and so I took it the second semester because my birthday was later uh, in the year. And, um, and we went through that course and, and uh, learned uh, all the things we needed to learn to be able to pass a written test. And then we went out with, once we did that, once we got our uh, permit, they called it, and then we could start driving with our instructor or with our parents. And, and so I did. I'd go out with our driving instructor, this, uh, the uh, teacher of that class, and we would, we would drive. We uh, took one Saturday trip, me and the instructor and another young man in the same class as I was, and we uh, drove for about 40 or 50 miles to another town so he could see his buddy, that is the instructor, and then we drove back, and so we got all of our time in, basically, in one trip. And, uh, but there came that day, finally, when the uh, driver's ed class was over, and uh, we'd taken the class and passed the test and got our permit and got so many hours of driving time in. There came that test, and we had to go to the uh, driver's license uh, facility there in the little town. Now, they were only there one day a week on Mondays, and uh, they were in the next bigger town the rest of the week. They came down to our little town on one day. And uh, so I remember on that Monday, I went down there and I figured this thing out. And that is, if you wait until right before they close, uh, then they hurry you right on through. And, uh, and so I did. I, you know, I waited. I think they closed probably about 4 or 4.30. And so I waited until it got close to time. And I went up there after school was over. And, uh, and so they um, saw that I had all the, uh, the permit, and they uh, put me in the car, in the car that I was in, my mom and dad's car, and they got in the car with me, and we drove around town. That's a little town, and uh, there's not a stoplight in the town. There are a few stop signs. And uh, so we drove around town a few times. I parked it a couple of times, and then we drove back, and I got my license. Now, I know that for some of you, it was a kind of a different setting. And uh, may have been a little more difficult than it was in the little town uh, where I grew up. But before they'd ever give me my license, I did have to pass the test. I did have to pass the written test in the driver's ed class, and I had to uh, pass the driving test uh, there with the driver's license at the driver's license facility in the little town. For me, it was a day of accounting. And that is, did I know enough? Was I good enough? Was I skilled enough to get that little card to set me free so that I could uh, get in a car and drive around uh, a little bit? I remember whenever Rachel first got her license. She's not here. But I remember when she first got her driver's license and she, we got home and she said, Dad, I'd like to take the car over to Walmart. Now, Walmart's just right around the corner, but I almost panicked. <laughs> and, uh, and so I can just imagine what my parents must have thought whenever I got in the car and drove off. Uh, the first time, not going much of anywhere, I don't imagine, uh, just recalling those days, even though I don't remember uh, for sure. There's always those, t- those times of accounting in our life. But we have to give an account uh, for what we know and what we have and, um, before we can uh, be able to move on in life. And ladies and gentlemen, if it's, if it's important, and it is, for young people to pass the test, that is to have a day of accounting, in order to be able to drive an automobile, then how much more important is it for you and I to do an accounting of our lives that is particularly of the inner man? 
and to look at ourselves and examine ourselves in the area of our affection. That is, in the area of the, of the love, the, the things that we love and the way that we love. That is, we need to stop every once in a while and do an accounting of our affection so that we can see where we're really at. Because we may not be as skilled as what we think we are. We might not know as much as we uh, think that we know. So we need to do an accounting of our affection. Now, we've been trying to do that. That is, we've been looking here in Hebrews chapter number 13. The writer of Hebrews is using uh, these phileo love words in these first few verses to try to help us to be able to deal uh, with, the, with our own hearts, our own affection. For example, in verse number 1, he deals with our affection for the people of God when he commands us there to let brotherly love continue. God's people ought to love each other, and it ought to be an increasing, growing, expanding kind of love, a continuing kind of love. And we talked about loving the people of God. And then in verse number 2, he writes about our affection for pilgrims and strangers. That is, those people that we don't even know. And uh, it may be uh, in this time period, he's writing about those who are traveling as a result of persecution and uh, rejection. And they needed help. They needed somebody to love them. They needed somebody. The word entertain there means to love the strangers. And that is, somebody needs to love these strangers by helping them and caring for them. And I don't know about you, but I tell you, that really uh, is a challenge for me, an accounting for me to back up and say, you know what, I can love my family and I can love the people of God here. But what about loving strangers? There needs to be an accounting of our affection with regards to pilgrims and strangers. And then, ladies and gentlemen, also the Bible tells us in verse number three that we need to do an accounting of our affection for those who are persecuted and suffering. Those who are in jail, bound in jail, assuming that what the author has in mind are those who have been arrested for the faith and been put in jail like Paul was and like other believers were. And those who are suffering all kinds of adversity, they need somebody to remember them. That is, they need somebody to love them. That is, to reach out to them and ministry to them. And we talked about that in the previous message. And then we got to verse number four, where he writes about our affection for our partner in life. And that is the first word in our English Bible is the word marriage, even though in the Greek it's the word honorable. That is what is honorable, highly esteemed, and valuable in life, ladies and gentlemen, is the relationship of marriage. That is being, uh, being committed to uh, your spouse, your partner in life. Now, you and I talked a little bit about the honor of marriage. And that is why it is that marriage is so honorable, going all the way back uh, to the story of creation where it all started And looking at the start of everything in Genesis 1 and 2 where God created marriage. The reason why that it is honorable is because of why God created it, how he created it, and what he created it uh, for. And then we looked at the sermons of Christ where Jesus talked about the value of marriage and affirmed the honor of marriage. And we looked also at the statements of Paul when he writes in Ephesians 5. He writes to wives, he writes to husbands, he writes to the church about the value of marriage in one of the longest, most extensive places about marriage in the New Testament and in the Bible, Ephesians chapter number 5. The honor of marriage. Marriage is honorable. It's highly esteemed. God esteems it, and the Bible says that you and I should as well. That is, that we should value this relationship. That is, obviously, we should value our own marriages specifically, but we, we should also esteem, value, and honor marriage in general. Even those of you that aren't married should hold marriage in high regard. As a matter of fact, and a society that is healthy is a society that will value and honor marriage. 
where marriage is being dishonored and disrespected, it is a, it is a society that is in trouble. It is a society, ladies and gentlemen, that is in the process of degenerating as we read about in Romans chapter number 1. And so when we read about the honor of marriage. And then in the service this morning, we began dealing with the second part of verse number 4. We began dealing with the holiness of marriage. And as the Bible tells us there that in verse number 4, the marriage is honorable in all. And then it says the bed undefiled. And the marriage bed is talking about the intimate relationship between a husband and wife within the boundaries of marriage. And the Bible says it is undefiled, that is, it's pure, that is, it is holy. And we discovered in the service this morning, by way of reminder to you, that when we're using, when I use the word holy, I'm using a word that not only means sinless, that is, when we're talking about the holiness of God, and when we're talking about the saints who are set apart as holy, we're talking about sinlessness, and we are. And that is, the Bible is telling us here that the relation, within the relationship of marriage, that is a Sexual expression within the relationship of marriage is not sinful. It's not sinful. And therefore it's holy. But when we use the word holy, we're describing not only something that is sinless, but we're describing something that is set apart. That is, the holiness of God means that God not only is a sinless being, but also that God is a set apart being. There's none like him. None like God. And ladies and gentlemen, the relationship of marriage is a set-apart relationship. It's a relationship that is set apart from all of the relationships on this planet and distinct from them. And it is within the context of that relationship that the Bible indicates to us that we are to express and experience our sexuality. God created us male and female, Genesis chapter number 1. And the reason why God created us male and female is so that we could experience the intimacy, the oneness of marriage. And the reason why that God had created us that way not only is for the pleasure that it brings, not only for the procreation that it brings, that is children that it brings into the world, but also, ladies and gentlemen, because it's a picture of Christ and his church. And that elevates this relationship within marriage to a very high level. It's a marriage, listen, it's a relationship set apart. And that is that God set apart marriage for you and for I to experience the relationship, our sexuality, and the intimacy that God designed us for. And it is only within that relationship. It is set apart because it's the only one there is. There's not another relationship in which God's purpose is for us to experience our sexuality that he created us with. It is only, that's why it's holy, it is only, it's the only relationship set apart For that purpose. And therefore it is holy. Now in the service this morning I began talking to you about guarding this area of our life. And that is that those who are single should guard themselves. And that is if someday in the future you're going to be married. Then you should guard your life. You should guard yourself against the enemy of this relationship. The holiness of marriage. And, uh, And those of us who are married. We should be guarding our own hearts as well. We should be guarding this relationship, the holiness that God established when he established our marriage relationship. Notice with me the adversative conjunction in verse number four. You say, Pastor, what in the world is that? It's the little word, but. Marriage is honorable in all in the bed and undefiled, but. When you get to that in a sentence, you know you're about ready to flip to the opposite. You're about ready to go in a different direction. 
The opposite of the undefiled marriage bed is whoremongering and adultering. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now, you remember I said to you in the service this morning, that word whoremonger is also the word translated fornication in many places in the Bible. It's a word that that is translated from the Greek uh, porneo, from which we get our word pornography. And in many places, it's used to describe just a a word that describes any, any kind of sexual immorality. In some places, in some contexts, and a lot of times the context determines this, in some contexts it is obvious that it's talking about those who are single, those who are unmarried, who are involved in sexual activity being unmarried. And that's the way it is used here. And the reason why is because in the context of verse number four, it is obvious that the word adultery or adulterers is referring to those who are married, who are being unfaithful to their marriage vows. And so the word whoremonger would be a word that's describing those who are unmarried, who also are involved in some sort of sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage. Now listen, being involved in sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage, whether you're single or whether you're married, ladies and gentlemen, is the opposite of the undefiled marriage bed. It is the enemy of marriage. There are many enemies that are trying to destroy marriage in this society and your marriage in particular. And this is one of them. There are many others, but this certainly is a big one. That is, you and I live in a a pornographic society. The word porneo. We live in that kind of a society, much like in the first century, in the Greek Roman society, it was very porneo. There was all kinds of sexual immorality that was accepted and glorified, ladies and gentlemen, and even a part of their worship in pagan idolatrous worship in that day. It was accepted. Within the Roman Empire, homosexuality is being accepted. It will be promoted as the centuries move on, as the decades pass. Homosexuality became one of the leading, uh, one of the leading problems in the Roman Empire, even among the Roman emperors themselves. And so sexual immorality was a real problem. And we find here that the writer of Hebrews is trying to help these believers, as well as Paul did in his letters, to recognize that this is unacceptable and off-limits to God's people. Now, in the service this morning, you might remember that we just began looking at the revelation against sexual immorality in the Bible. That is, in the Bible, we find revealed to us in the Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, we find revealed to us this prohibition throughout the Bible. We saw it in the law, in the Ten Commandments, and in the law, God revealed uh, to us uh, the sexual immorality is outside the boundaries for, uh, for God's people and society and for a nation who wants to survive and wants to thrive. We saw the revelation from our Savior. Our Lord taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we went through some of the New Testament letters and saw the revelation for the church. God God revealed to the church in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, our Savior, as he spoke, ladies and gentlemen, in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the New Testament letters, it is obvious that adultery, that is sexual activity outside of marriage, is off limits. That is, it's outside the boundaries of God's will. That is, if we in any way try to justify sexual immorality, ladies and gentlemen, we are beyond the bounds of Scripture. And that is happening. It's happening throughout our society. It is happening in churches across our country where sexual immorality is being 
glossed over, justified, and even in some cases accepted and glorified. But ladies and gentlemen, God hasn't changed. Whether you're living in Old Testament era, whether you're living in the first century or the 21st century, there is only one relationship that has been set aside to experience our sexuality, and that is the relationship of marriage, and is the only one. That's it. And God's not making any exceptions for anyone. So we've been looking at the revelation, the revelation against sexual immorality. Now, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that our country uh, has moved down this road that we not only have accepted sexual immorality, that has not only accepted it, but it's being glorified and it is being promoted all across this country through every form of media that you can imagine. Glorified and promoted. And anyone, ladies and gentlemen, even among the young people of our society who says, I believe that this is for marriage and, and I'm going to wait for marriage, is looked down upon in our society as being strange. But I tell you, I'd rather be strange than I would be outside the boundaries of God's will on this, wouldn't you? As a matter of fact, I think I'm a little bit strange, so it wouldn't surprise me if somebody else thinks I'm a little bit strange. Matter of fact, if you want to come up to me and say, preacher, there's something wrong with you, I'll vote on that. You won't get an argument from me. But ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand that, uh, that the Bible is clear. And our society is moving down this road. And, and there's pressure on everyone that I know to compromise, if not personally in your own life, at least in your beliefs about this. To go along and accept that this is okay. Sexual immorality is okay. That deviant sexual behavior is okay. And it is not. It is not. Under any circumstance. You say, Pastor, you don't know my circumstances, but I know God. And so God has given us clear, he has given us clear revelation about sexual immorality. I preached about that this morning. I'm trying not to do it again, but I want to lay the foundation once again so that I can talk to you about the results of sexual immorality. I've been talking to you about the revelation against it, but let's talk about the results of sexual immorality. The Bible tells us here, indicates to us in the verse that we'll look at, verse number four, that there are results, there are consequences uh, for sexual immorality. The Bible words it this way, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now, if you were in the service this morning, you and I looked at a passage in Leviticus 20 where we saw the results in the law. When God gave the Old Testament law, God built in the results or consequences of adultery. And I tell you that they are startling, are they not? Remember what I read to you in Leviticus 20 in the service this morning? I said to you that the Bible is clear that if a man commits adultery uh, with his neighbor's wife, that the adulterer and the adulteress is to be, their life is to end. They're to, they're to end their lives? And the Bible also says in Leviticus 20 as well, and that is that if you're involved in a relationship with somebody in your own family, that is with your father's mother or your daughter-in-law, that is if there's incest, the Bible says that, uh, that the punishment is death. And then the Bible also says that if a man is involved in a relationship with a man like he would be a woman, that it is an abomination to the Lord and the consequence is death. 
You say, Pastor, why in the world would God say something like that? Because God is a holy God and the consequences of sin and corruption is always death. And he's revealing that in the Old Testament law. It sounds harsh to our Western ears, doesn't it? But God makes it clear the results in the law. The Bible also tells us about the results for the lost. For those who are unsaved, who are living a life of ungodliness, a life of sexual immorality, it is not going to go unnoticed. As a matter of fact, let me remind you in Romans chapter number 1, ladies and gentlemen, that there are consequences to giving yourself over to lost person, to giving yourself over to sexual immorality. Let me read it to you real quick in Romans chapter number 1. Notice it with me for a few moments. In Romans chapter number 1, the Bible tells us in verse number 21, it says, because that when they knew God, that is a society of people, when they knew God, God was being preached to them. There's churches revealing who God is. But when they knew God, then they decided to glorify him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain or empty in their imaginations, and then their foolish heart was darkened. Those who have, listen, a society that has had the revelation of God given to them, And that is that God has been preached, God has been revealed. They've got Bibles in every Walmart you go to that tells us all about God. There's churches that tell us about God, ladies and gentlemen. And when when God has been revealed to a society, and that society where God has been revealed to them, they decide that they don't need that God, the God of the Bible, anymore. We don't want God, the God of the Bible. We don't want that God. The God that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, we don't want that God. We want to be able to live a lifestyle, a lifestyle uh, that uh, pleases our flesh. We want to live a vain, empty lifestyle. We want to live a darkened lifestyle, a lifestyle in which I do whatever I want to do. And by the way, if uh, pregnancy is the result of that, then we just go get an abortion. Listen, the reason why the abortion issue is a problem in our society is because immorality is a problem in our society. The reason why that there are those who are adamant about the issue of abortion is because, ladies and gentlemen, that because of their immorality, because they're adamant about maintaining an immoral lifestyle. And so a society that rejects God will start moving down the road of darkness and vanity. And the Bible tells us in verse number 22, they profess themselves to be wise. Oh, yeah, they're they're teaching in the universities. They've got the Ph.D. behind their name. They're the ones who tell you that there is so much evidence for this. That we've done all the research. They profess themselves to be wise, but they are actually the ones who are fools. As a matter of fact, I can make the case, and I have before, I can make the case that there, are, that there are children in our preschool department that are wiser than some of the university professors in this town. You know the reason why? Is because they know that God exists. And they know that God has said, Thou shalt not commit adultery among other Ten Commandments. 
They're smarter and wiser than those who profess to be the wise ones in a society that's walking in darkness. You know what they do? Verse 23, they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. That is, instead of worshiping God, we don't need God, so they begin to make their own gods. We call that idolatry, don't we? Have to have our own God. And, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what happens. In a society that's moving down the road of darkness, God is no longer needed in our society. Instead, we have our own little gods, our little G-gods that we worship. And the Bible says that that's what they do. They start worshiping other things. And uh, you and I, listen, we live in a society that worship, worship idols, that is worshiping the idol of materialism in our society. By the way, you know that covetousness is idolatry, according to the Scripture. It sure is. So the Bible says, wherefore, God gave them up. Now, those ought to be some of the scariest words in the Bible for any society. That is, they turned away from God, rejected God, and now they're worshiping idols, so God gave them up. You know what he gave them up to? To uncleanness. Through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. That is, he's talking about... Sexual immorality. God pulled his hand back, and as a result of a society that rejects God, turns away from God and begins to worship idols, God pulls his hand back, and it's a society then that gives themselves over, ladies and gentlemen, to, to sexual immorality. The Bible says they change the truth of God into a lie, and they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And for this cause, God gave them up. This time it takes a step further to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the air which was meat. In other words, the Bible tells us here that a society moving in the direction of darkness, ladies and gentlemen, said we don't need God anymore, and uh, begin to worship the idols of the world, the man-made idols of the world. And as a result, God pulls his hand back. And you can see when God pulls his hand back, because that's a society that gives themselves over to sexual immorality. And listen, a society that gives themselves over to sexual immorality that is unrepentant will soon, soon take another step into darkness, into deviant sexual behavior, which is against nature, women with women and men with men. Now, when that happens, you know that society is nearing the end. Because the Bible tells us in verse number 28 that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are, can, are not convenient. And then he gives a whole list, a whole list of wickedness and sin and ungodliness that a society that has reached this point, ladies and gentlemen, that they, because their mind is reprobate, they'll live in this kind of a sin and not be ashamed, not be repentant, be uncaring. Not only will they enjoy their sin and ungodliness, but ladies and gentlemen, they glorify those who are involved in this list of sins that's given here. That is, that is good is turned upside down so it looks bad in their eyes, and bad looks good in their eyes. They glory in ungodliness. Now listen. I'm not saying all of this just to hear my head rattle tonight. I'm saying to you, that's where we're at in this country. We're moving in this same direction that leads to the degeneration and eventually the destruction of society. 
And for that reason, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have got to guard ourselves. We've got to be on guard in this day in which we're living. You see, for those who are lost, the results of sexual immorality moves them into a realm of more darkness. Those who give themselves over to sexual immorality are stepping into further darkness in our society. The results for the lost, ladies and gentlemen, are seen in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 5. I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to what it says. Listen closely. Ephesians 5 verse 5. Are you ready? For this we know, that no whoremonger, that's the word that we saw in Hebrews 13, 4. Nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. One of these days the lost are going to stand before God the great white throne judgment. The books are going to be opened. The Bible is insinuating here that the adulterous lifestyle, the sexual immorality of the ungodly, is going to be the reason the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them, among other things, because of their sinful, wicked, lost lifestyle. Listen, you say, Pastor, are you sure about that? Well, listen to 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, the Bible says in verse number 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That's talking about one side of a homosexual relationship, abusers of themselves with mankind is another side of that relationship nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these folks are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul wrote. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter number 2. In 2 Peter chapter number 2 and verse number 9, the Bible says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust, that is the unsaved, under the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly... Those that are going to be punished, chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, despise government, presumptuous they are, self-willed, and not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Those who walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness are describing those who are involved in sexual immorality. Revelation 21.8, the Bible says this, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments and they that they may have right to eat the tree of life that enter in through the gates of the city. But without, outside, outside, outside of the city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Now here's the point. For those who are lost, who've never been saved, one of these days you're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, and you're going to answer to the Lord 
and be cast into a lake of fire. And listen to me now. Sexual immorality is one of the things among many that is heaping up, heaping up the judgment of God upon you when you stand before him in judgment. One of these days, stand, the lost will stand before him, bow their heads in shame. Their sexually immoral lifestyle, ladies and gentlemen, standing before them as convincing evidence that the wrath of God is what they deserve. If you're here and you're lost, listen to me now. If you're here and you're lost, the wrath of God is already upon you and is being heaped up against you. The only hope that you have is to flee to the person of Christ and to his cross. I'm speaking to the results of sexual immorality for the lost. It's heaping up the judgment of God against you one day. There's the results in the law. There's the results for the lost. And by the way, there's the results during life. Whether a person is lost or saved, sexual immorality brings consequences to our lives. That is our life here on the earth. For example, there are results in our body. You remember what I read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 earlier in the service this morning? That is, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, that we should flee or run away from fornication or sexual immorality. And every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that, listen, he that committeth fornication, the Bible says, sinneth against his own body. In other words, the Bible is telling us here that the results of sexual immorality in the life of any person, whether they're saved or whether they're lost, it brings results in this life. For the lost, you're heaping up the judgment of God against you for all eternity. But even for those of us who are saved, that listen, even though we're going to be with the Lord in heaven, even though he's forgiven us of our sin, this is one sin, ladies and gentlemen, that has consequences or results with regard to our own body. You say, Pastor, what kind of results are you talking about? Disease would certainly be one. That would be one. Death would be another one. You say, what do you mean? Well, there are some people that are diseased with diseases that end their life as a direct consequence of sexual immorality. There are others who have died a violent death as a result of their involvement in sexual immorality. There are other believers that I am convinced that God took them home early because they would not repent of their sexual immorality. So there, there are, we're talking about the results during life. We're talking about the results to our, in our body. We also have to consider the results in our homes. Sexual immorality leads to broken marriages. And listen. Broken children. You live in a society of children who have something broken on the inside of them. Many of them don't realize it until they reach teenage years and sometimes adults. And they realize there's something broken in me. And part of that brokenness goes right on back to when they were growing up in a home where there was sexual immorality and ungodliness and corruption that brought destruction to their family. 
See, here's what God intended. He intended for children to grow up in a, in a, in a family where there is a man and a woman who love each other. I said to you in the service this morning, there's not a marriage that is sinless because we're, we're all fallen sinful creatures. But ladies and gentlemen, will you, have the, will you have a relationship between a man and a woman that is committed to one another, that is growing, that where they love each other? That is the place of the atmosphere that God intended for children to grow up in. And when that relationship is broken and severed because of sexual immorality, it impacts not only the two that are involved in the marriage, but also the children as well. Now, I'm not just talking about little baby children. It impacts grown children as well. What I'm trying to describe to you is the results of sexual immorality, the results in life, results with regard to our body, what results in our homes. Also, what about the results in our testimony? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 3 that fornication or sexual immorality is one of those things that should not be named once among the saints. It shouldn't have any place among the saints of God at all. And ladies and gentlemen, when it does, then you and I, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are, uh, there are consequences with regard to our testimony as a church and as an individual. Let me just say it this way, and that is that the testimony of believers and Christians in our community and around the world has been tainted and marred because of sexual immorality among those who claim to be the people of God. There's consequences and results in our testimony. And that is, the world looks at the church and sees all kinds of sexual immorality and ungodliness within the ranks of church and church leadership, ladies and gentlemen, and it is detrimental to our testimony to the lost and dying world. And so the results during life is the results to our body and in our homes and to our testimony. And by the way, the results in our church. I read to you that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 where there was a man in the Corinthian church, ladies and gentlemen, that was living in sexual immorality in a way that was completely so shameful that even lost people would be embarrassed by it. He was in a relationship with his father's wife. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 5? And Paul said to the church, what is wrong with you? And I'm going to paraphrase, okay? Instead of reading, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He's writing to the church and said, what's wrong with you, church? You're walking around all puffed up about this. Walking around, talking about it as though it would never happen to you. You're all puffed up. Here's what you ought to be. You ought to be mourning and grieving over this. And he said, I've already judged the matter based on what I know. You all need to get together. And I won't be there physically, but I'll be there in spirit. And you need to get together. And you need to, you need to turn this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And the implication is, is that they need to remove that person from the umbrella of protection in the life of the church. Now, I want to say to you that Every church leader that I know takes no joy in having to deal with circumstances like that. But approaches it with a grieving heart. Ladies and gentlemen, grieving heart. It impacts the entire church. Listen to me. If you, those of us that heard tonight, if you, are or go down the road of sexual immorality, it not only is going to have an impact on your life personally, on your home, the people in your family, your testimony, 
but also our church. And by the way, there's also results with regard to our service. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, those who go down the road of sexual immorality, it limits our opportunity to be able to serve. It limits our opportunity to be able to serve. Now, I'm so thankful that in the Corinthian church, by the way, I'm thankful and glad to be able to report to you that the Corinthian church apparently did confront and deal with this person who's living in this kind of immorality in the life of the church. And apparently, when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, apparently this man realized how wicked and sinful he had been, how wrong he had been. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says he became extremely sorrowful with godly sorrow that brought him to the point of repentance. As a matter of fact, he was so overcome with sorrow that Paul wrote to the church and he said, listen, you need to be, I want, you to, I want you to know that you need to forgive this person lest they be overcome completely with their grieving and with their sorrow. To forgive him. And he said, the reason why you need to do that is because I'm not ignorant of Satan's devices. I know how the devil operates. And so you need to forgive this person that is, has a repentant heart. When a person has messed up, sinned against God, went down a bad road, and God brings them to a point of real repentance, you'll know it. And the reason why is there'll be real brokenness, there'll be a real turning, there'll be real grieving, there will be real reconciliation, ladies and gentlemen, with those that they've offended. And, uh, and when that happens, then the Bible tells us, uh, and the Bible commands the church to forgive them. But listen, sexual immorality will limit a person's service, the ability to be able to serve. There are consequences and results that come with sexual immorality. Let me remind you of the example of David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba in the Old Testament. You remember his story, don't you? And that is that David is a great king, ladies and gentlemen. He is defeating his enemies, and he has risen to a point of greatness. Now, this is a real man of God. This is not an unbeliever. This is not a lost man. As a matter of fact, David is one of those uh, persons uniquely in the Old Testament that has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis in his life. In the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, those who operated by faith many times did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what's new about the New Testament. And, uh, but there are times that the Spirit of God did move upon individuals for certain times and certain occasions and, uh, and, then, uh, and then removed off of them. But there are a few examples of those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis. David is one of them. Since Samuel anointed him, the Spirit of God came upon him and remained on him. So this is a man of God who has the Spirit of God living on the inside of him. This is a man, ladies and gentlemen, that has walked with God in the darkest hours that you can imagine. And that is a man who has faced off against a bear and, and, uh, and been victorious. This is a man, ladies and gentlemen, that stood up to a nine-foot Goliath and put a brock right between his eyeballs there and brought him down. This is a man who has stood fearlessly against the enemy. This is a man who, when he was being chased by the king Saul and was in hiding for a period of months and months and months, in hiding against the, uh, against the army that was trying to hunt him down, refused, refused to take the life of Saul when he had an opportunity, lest he offend God. He's a man of integrity. He's a man that is godly. He's a man after God's own heart. But one day, when he was looking out, while his army, while, his, while it was a time of war, and while the army was away, 
He was up there looking around on the rooftop. That's a cool place where you want to cool off. You go up on the rooftop. And he looked out across the way, and he saw a beautiful woman on her rooftop, and she was bathing herself. David not only lusted after her when he saw her, but he had the opportunity to be able to engage in a relationship with her. The Bible says he sent his servant to, find, to get the woman and bring her to him, and, uh, and he fulfilled his lustful desire with her. You remember the story? King David had, the, he had lust in his heart. He had the opportunity was before him, and so he acted. As a result of the relationship that he had with Bathsheba, she became pregnant. She conceived a child. And the Bible tells us that whenever uh, David found out about it, he's trying to, he's trying to uh, put together a plan to be able to cover up his sin and his wickedness. The Bible says that whoever covers his sin won't prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes his sin, that's the one who will have mercy in the Proverbs. David's trying to cover up his sin. And as a result of that, as a result of his uh, sexual immorality, ladies and gentlemen, all kinds of consequences and results begin to unfold. Number one is the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. I'm not going to read the story to you, but I'll just tell it to you. And there's a David's trying to figure out how I'm going to cover this up. And so he decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to have her husband call back off the battlefield. And he's going to come back home, that is, uh, here to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to his house with his wife. He hasn't been with her a while. And he's going to be with her and, uh, and be intimate with her. And so everybody's going to think the child conceived is Uriah's. And everything will be okay. And so he calls Uriah back from the battlefield. And Uriah gets there. And Uriah is such a loyal soldier, ladies and gentlemen, that he says, I can't go home and be with my wife while the rest of the army is still out there in battle. I just can't do it. He wouldn't go home and be with his wife. Now, David's got a real problem on his hands. He's trying to work a way to cover this thing up. And that isn't working. He tries again, and it just doesn't work. And this guy is not going to be convinced. And so he tells Joab, the captain of his army, here's the plan. And that is, I want you to get this guy out in the, in the hottest part of the battle, where the, enemy is, uh, where, the, where the enemy is the strongest. And I want you to get him out there, and then I want you to retreat the others and let him fight them by himself, and, uh, and he's surely going to die. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what Joab did at the king's order, and Uriah died there on the battlefield. And so here we go now. The results are coming in. It's kind of like election night, isn't it? Everybody's gone to vote, and now the results are finally coming in. And there's a David has had his moment of pleasure, and now the results are coming in. Number one, there's a man dead on the battlefield. Not only is there a man dead on the battlefield, but the judgment of God comes upon David and his house. Remember, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 12, and I'm going to just paraphrase. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 12 that God, after about a year approximately of covering this thing up, after Uriah got killed, the Bible tells us that David took Bathsheba into his home as one of his wives. And he looked like the hero for a little while. Everything was covered up. Until a prophet of God named Nathan got alone with the Lord one day and God began to speak to him. And God revealed to him what was going on. And Nathan went to the king 
Now listen, you have to admire a prophet like this, a fearless prophet who's willing to obey God and come and expose the most powerful man probably in the world at that point, King David, to expose him for the, for the corrupt man that he is. He comes up to David and says, David, I, I want to tell you a story about something I heard. And that is, there's a guy, a wealthy man. He's got all kinds of, of herds, got all kinds of sheep. And, and, uh, and he's a wealthy man. He's got a neighbor right next down the lane there. And he's, only, he's a poor man. He's got one little lamb. And that little lamb that he has is just like a family pet. I mean, he, uh, and uh, all the kids love him and everybody loves him. And that wealthy man had a visitor come, somebody he loved very much, come to his house. And he decided he was going to kill a little lamb and, and have a big dinner, have a big feast for him. And so, word is... That he went over, he got all these, he went over and got his neighbors one lamb that they loved so much. Stole his lamb, killed it. Fixed it up, fed it to his friends. And now here's a family that doesn't have any lamb. They're grieving and they're weeping over their loss of the lamb. While he's got all these lambs still in his flock. David said, if I ever find out who that is, you know who it is, Nathan. You tell me who it is. If I find out, I am going to hold that man accountable. And the Bible says that Nathan, those famous words of Nathan the prophet, he said to David, thou, in the King James, art the man. You're the guy, David. He said, like that rich man, you've got all these wives. And he did. He had a lot of wives. You've got all these women, all these wives. He had, listen, you're wealthy, you could, and you could have any other woman you wanted in the, in the kingdom. You've got all these wives. And you went and you stole a man's only wife. David knew that it was up now. His sin that he thought he had covered up was now being exposed. And said, Nathan, I need God to forgive me. I have sinned. You're exactly right. And David got honest. Ladies and gentlemen, he got honest about his sin as a matter of fact, if you want to read David's prayer as he began to cry out to God, you read the 51st Psalm and you can read his prayers. He's crying out to God, be merciful to be a, be a sinner, God, and, and purge me with hyssop and I'll be whiter than the snow. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me so, I can, so that I can tell others about you. Restore the joy of my salvation. Psalm 51, ladies and gentlemen. He cried out to God and he was broken, ladies and gentlemen. And here's what Nathan said. Nathan said, you know what, David? God has forgiven you. But the results of your sin are never going to leave your house. There are consequences for what you've done. First of all, there's going to be corruption in his own home. Here's what Nathan said. You know what's going to happen? Your wives, and that is that your neighbors and others around you, are going to take your wives and lay with them, be involved in sexual relationships with them, and it's going to be done openly. There's going to be corruption in your house with your own wives. And by the way, he said, you also have given a cause for the enemy. Second Samuel chapter number 12, verses 13 and 14, he said, you've given cause for the enemy, for the enemy to point their finger at you and make an inroad into your family life. Not only is there going to be corruption in your house, not only have you created a cause for the enemy, but also that child that you conceive with Bathsheba, not going to live. 
And after that baby was born, it died. And I'll tell you, David mourned and grieved his heart out. And the Bible tells us it's a direct result of David's sexual immorality. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will, he will judge. You say, Pastor, is there any hope? The only hope there is, ladies and gentlemen, for whoremongers and adulterers, the only hope there is, is a man named Jesus. That's it. Just him. You say, what do you mean? Listen, the Lord can transform an adulterer and a whoremonger. He sure can. I want you to listen to these verses and then I'll be about done. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. I read them earlier, but I didn't read all of it. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. The Bible says this. Know ye not that the unrighteous, in verse number 9, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Two phrases that describe homosexual relationships. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. None of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then the next verse, verse 11 says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. Paul says, now that I'm thinking about it, that's what, that's what you were. That is in the Corinthian church, ladies and gentlemen, there were people there that were fornicators that had been living a life of idolatry. There were those who had been committing adultery. There were those involved in homosexual relationships. There were those who were thieves, that were covetous, that were drunkards, that were revilers, that were extortioners. That's what they were. But listen to what the Bible says. But now, he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, and you're justified or made right in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, that's what you were. But guess what? One day, these folks met Jesus. Paul came preaching the gospel. They heard about Jesus. They turned to Christ. And when they turned to Christ, God forgave them and cleansed them and washed them and justified them so that what they were is not what they are. Not anymore. Now listen. There's a relationship that God has set aside. So that you and I can express our sexuality. Only one. And it's called marriage. And those who have committed adultery and lived a lifestyle of adultery. There is forgiveness. But as with King David, there are results and consequences that we often have to live with the rest of our life. Now, I'm saying all, that, all of that to say, you, to say to you, and that is don't use God's mercy as an excuse to justify or to be involved in sexual immorality. You say, God will forgive me, but oh, dear friend, he will, and I'm so glad. 
But listen to me, there are consequences that forgiveness doesn't always erase. David found that out. I'm saying all of that to you so that you can do an accounting of your affection. If you find your heart wandering in that direction, you better stop and do an accounting before you go down a road that has consequences that are far-reaching. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and your people and what you're saying to us and how you're working in us. And God, I pray, Father, that you would so speak and so operate that those who are here that are lost have never met Jesus, that they would turn to Christ even tonight, receive him as Lord of their life. And Father, I pray that you let them see their sin, their guilt, deserving of your judgment, and that the only hope is Jesus and what he did on that cross. The only way to be delivered, the only way to be saved, the only way to be rescued, forgiven, is because of what Christ did. And God, I pray for your people, Lord, some maybe who in their heart, maybe nobody even knows, but in their heart, they're beginning to drift in the direction that is being pulled by the world in a direction that involves sexual immorality. I pray, God, that you'd rescue those hearts. I pray, God, that you'd turn them around. Father, for your glory. And we'll give you the praise for what you're about to do now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. And as we